You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. I don't know whether it was a Cowboys, uh, Mystique, but where it came from was NFL Films. They tagged it one year as America's team. Legendary Dallas Cowboys head coach Tom Landry. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. the NFL regular season kicks off tomorrow night, September 9th, as the Dallas Cowboys take on the Super Bowl champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now for 29 seasons, those Cowboys were coached by one of the most successful head coaches in NFL history, the great Tom Landry, who was in fact the very first coach of the Cowboys as an expansion franchise in 1960. Under his leadership, they racked up 20 consecutive winning seasons. They went to five Super Bowls, winning two of them had five NFC championships and 13 divisional titles. And Landry himself became an icon for that little fedora he'd wear on the sidelines. But then a string of losing seasons in the late 1980s may have done him in. When the Cowboys' new owner, Jerry Jones, took over in 1989, the next day he fired Tom Landry. Now the following year, Landry wrote his autobiography, and that's when I met him. So here now, from late summer 1990, Tom Landry... Well, I never really felt like I wanted to write a book. Uh, uh, I never wrote an X and O's book or anything like that. And uh, the, the reason I think I, I decided to write this book was that, you know, after I was released last year, uh, the people were so kind and, and to my family, myself, you know, since that time, I felt like I would write a book that might, they might reminisce, you know, through the history of the Cowboys and give them a chance to look at me, hopefully, uh, a little different. They look at me at sidelines. <laughs> You know, everybody likes to be liked. We all hope that other people like Mm us. But what does it feel like when you're fired and the public knows about it? It hits all the newspapers. It's on TV and it's on radio and everywhere. And suddenly the letters start coming in, the phone calls, the telegrams of support showing just how much people really do like you. Well, it was really an amazing experience for me personally. Uh, You know, they had a Tom Landry Day in Dallas, and I couldn't believe it. They wanted to have a parade, and I said, boy, we don't want a parade. You know, nobody's (laughs) going to show up at a parade, especially for a fired coach. (laughs) But they did, and they showed up in mass, and it was really a a moving experience. You know, they just came out and and really were, you could look in their eyes, and they were just uh, showing their love and concern for us as a family. And And to me, that's about the the nicest thing can happen. You've had some time now to reflect. It's been a while since uh, since the coaching hat was uh, was taken away and given to someone else so unceremoniously. Looking back on the 29 years that you were in charge of coaching the Dallas Cowboys, what uh, does it feel like sometimes it was somebody else's life that you're looking back on now? No, not really. I think we had uh, a great deal of success, you know, with the Cowboys, especially in the 70s. We went 20 years of winning football and went to five Super Bowls. And and, and when you think back, uh, it's really uh, it's kind of exciting to look back and see what we really went through in those years. And they weren't all good years. They were downs and ups and all that you have in football. But uh, to look back at the players and look, look back at the, how they overcame a lot of adversity, you know, through those years and still – ended up on a high note is, is a rewarding thing in coaching. How did it come about, do you suppose, that the team had the same owner, the same general manager, the same coach for 29 years? 
Well, I think it, ha it, it starts from the top. Uh, the late Clint Murkison, who took over the Dallas Cowboys, and uh, obviously he didn't have to spend the millions for it that they do today. And But he was a unique owner. His dad told him one time to, uh, when you hire a man, you hire a man, you leave him alone. See if he can do the job. And all the years, 29 years, well, it wasn't 29 before Clint passed away, but mm -hmm. it was almost 25 or 24. That's a long time, though. But it was a long time. But he never criticized me, you know, never second-guessed us, either Tex or myself. And when you take the pressure off, you know, management, knowing that when you go into those valleys that you have to work your way out, that you have the support of the owner. Cause he used to write me notes all the time when I got in those low points and encouraged me and all that. And, and it was really a, a great experience, you know, to, to coach and under a management like that. But, you know, even George Steinbrenner, notwithstanding, there are a lot of owners today who think that's no way to run any kind of prof yeah. professional team. Well, I think what happens really, uh, Bill, is that they will, uh, the pressure gets to them. You know, just like Jerry Jones, now he paid, oh, something like a hundred and some million dollars for the for the stadium and, and the team. And when you do that, you're in the bank for a lot of money. And when you hit those low points and people are not coming to the to the stadium to watch the games, you're losing all that revenue. It's hard for you to, to take that without making a change. And the coach is the only one you can change. You don't fire owners. <laughs> you know, you don't fire players. You fire coaches, and, and that's the unfortunate thing, you know, in the game. Now, this book uh, is, uh, is uh, one of these unique co-publishing ventures between HarperCollins and Zondervan. And Zondervan is a Christian book publishing house. Mm -hmm. Christianity is an important part of your life, isn't it? It's probably the most important part of my life. It is, without a doubt. Uh, you know, I was raised in a church because my parents told me you ought to go to church. And, but we never read the Bible at home, and we really didn't pray unless we had company or something like that. And, and I thought I was a Christian. But then when, in 1959, I went to a Bible study with a Christian friend of mine, and the first time I'd ever opened the Bible. I was 30, you know, 34, 35 years old at that time, and, and I learned what the gospel of Jesus Christ was all about, and I accepted Christ as my Savior. And when you do that, then the priorities change. You know, football was 100% my life up until then, you know, and then God becomes number one. Your family takes on a very different dimension, you know, once you become a Christian. And football becomes a third thing, and uh, it doesn't really affect winning and losing, you know, it just affects the quality of your life. And that's what's most important when you end up. You know, I've been through everything, you know, up to the top and down and everything else. And, and when you look back on it, you know the most important thing is have a right, the right relationship with God. And when you do, then you, you have the fulfillment that life has to offer you. And that's what I discovered, and that's what I enjoyed all those years with the Cowboys. I'd always been curious, and I mean no disrespect by any means, but I, I, was, I was always curious how a, a good church-going Christian works on a Sunday. I mean, do you, do you, are you down there on the sidelines thinking, gee, I ought to be in church right now? Well, I think it's something that, that concerns us as Christians, but really, when you don't have a choice, you know, I believe that God puts us in a, in a certain uh, place, and he put me as a coach, and I happen to be coaching a professional team, and a professional team was playing on Sunday. <laughs> And I believe if you have no choice, then I think it's, to me, it's personally okay. Now, if you have a choice, if you want to get up on Sunday morning and go play golf instead of go to church, you know, then I think it's a little bit questionable, you know, whether you ought to be playing golf or not. But we had no choice. And, and yet we had, we developed great chapel programs for our teams. We, we developed uh, Bible studies that met with their wives and, and the players on Thursday night. And so we created a Christian atmosphere, even though we couldn't really go to church, you know, on Sunday. 
I mean, we live in a secular, humanistic society today. There ain't any question. You know, in America, since the 60s, it changed. And you have now a society where man's the center of all things instead of God. And when you have that, you got trouble. And that's what's causing most all of our trouble today. After this short break, the key qualities that Tom Landry always looked for in his players. Now back to my 1990 interview with Tom Landry. Does a good coach need to be able to tell when a young player who's coming up is going to be the one that he's going to pick to make the team and he knows that this guy, he's going to have to cut him? In other words, can you, do you have to be able to spot talent from day one? Well, I don't think you can really. You, you have to have an indication that this player coming out of college is going to be a player just because of your scouting system. But once he comes in and starts competing against the veteran players, then you start to get an inkling, you know, whether he can play professional football. I don't think you really know for sure. Some guys you can, but, but a lot of them you can't. And you give them a chance to compete for a while, and then you make the decision whether or not they can compete. It may take them a year if they have promise to ever come up. And then they may miss then, you know, after that year, and then you have to make a change. Now, you also have to look beyond just the, just the statistics, beyond just the, the fundamental things. Uh, can he pass? Can he run? Don't you have to look at chemistry, how he works with other team members, and, uh, and how, he, how he looks upon what his job is? We had, we had five traits with the Cowboys that we measured a, a, a rookie on. Character evaluation was one of them in there, a quickness, and we call it quickness control, how good an athlete he was. Competitiveness is another one that we, how competitive is he? And the third one was mental alertness. And the fourth one was strength and explosion. So what you see in those five traits, you see two physical traits, but you see three mental traits that make a football player. And uh, the guy with character will bring you out of the valleys. He'll bring you out of those losing seasons in there because he won't give up. Uh, if you don't, if you don't have character, they're going to blame the other teammates. They're going to blame everybody. You know why they're in that position. So, so the mental traits of professional football is really a big, major part of it. Really, is that what a good coach should be? As he's as he's learning how to coach, the same way players learn how to play, mm-hmm. should he be developing that 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 sense of 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 looking for the mental traits as well as just the physical. Can somebody yeah. do the physical job? But you also got to figure out who's going to fit the team together. No question about it. And 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 that and the character part of it, the competitiveness, the competitiveness. If you're not a competitor, then you you won't make it. You know, in the National Football League, because you're, you're competing, and, and unless you're willing to pay the price, you know, to be successful, you're not going to be successful. And and that's a very important trait. You can hardly miss on a player that, that is as a competitor. Now, I see passages in your book, and I see pictures in here about the great games against the Redskins, but what happened to that Cowboys-Redskins rivalry? It seems to have petered out over the years. Well, it's only because it was at its high, highest when George Allen was coaching. <laughs> George Allen, was a, he, he knew how to hype up a team. He knew how to use psychology. He would tell, you know, uh, Talbert to tell Roger he couldn't play and he was a, he couldn't pass he couldn't run and Roger would get so mad he couldn't hardly play the game and that was George's way you know of getting his team ready George was a master of pulling the uh, the recognition off him I remember when Sonny Jurgensen and and Kilmer went up they played New England and New England beat them 
and all the way back, and I'll never forget and read the paper, he was talking about the controversy, the press is a problem. You know, they're always saying I should be this way with Kilmer and there. And the next week, all they were writing about was Kilmer and, <laughs> and uh, Jurgensen and didn't say anything about losing a football game. <laughs> but George is that way, and he's a great friend of mine anyway, and he, uh, we had some great rivalry so, with Washington. What made the Dallas Cowboys America's team? I think the thing that really made it was the fact that we, you know, we went 20 years of winning, you know, seasons, and we missed the playoffs only once. That meant we were on television every year in playoffs, Super Bowls, championship games, and and I think people kind of started to identify with us because we came from no place as an expansion club. It took us five years to win as many as we lost, you know, in those early years. And I think they just, I don't know whether it was a Cowboys uh, mystique or something that caused that, but where it came from was from the national NFL films. You know, they put that highlight film together. Mm -hmm. You have a 0-11-1 record, and you think you're a Super Bowl champ by the time they get (laughs) through with it. And they tagged it one year as America's team. And I think what they saw was what we see. When we come to Washington, we have fans all over. You know, in Washington, any place we went, we uh, we had fans. And I think this is what they saw. NFL film saw, and that's why they put the tag of the America's team on Also, there. is it maybe because Dallas seems like a little bit more wholesome town than L.A. or New York? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, yeah, it could be, but I still believe it stems to the following you have. And that's what I find today. I travel over the United States. I probably traveled more this year speaking across the country than I ever have. And there's cowboy fans everywhere. You know, they look back to the 70s when they were growing up, and now they're in their 20s and 25, 30s now. And uh, it meant a great deal to them to be Cowboy fans. I'm sure you've had no shortage of coaching offers since you left the Cowboys. Why haven't you gotten back into it? Well, I think I made it pretty clear. You know, I've been in, in football for 40 years, you know, and, and I'm really at a point where I want to get out, and I don't want to coach. I, I want to be with my family more, you know, you know, watch my grandchildren play sports and, and do those things that, that I never had a chance to do before. And that's what we're enjoying right now. I think there were. Any predictions for this season? Well, it's going to, you know, the Cowboys are going to improve. They have to, you know. <laughs> uh, they, were, they, they went to, to, a, to a young team. They got rid of all the management, all the players that, that I knew. And they, they look like a, a, a foreign team to me. You know, they, I, don't under, I don't recognize anybody. And for that reason, I think it's easy for me not to miss it just because of that. If I was the only one to step down last year, oh, it would have been terrible because I would have been out there and been a part of the team, and it would have been terrible. But it's, it's fine now. I have no problems. Tom Landry died in 2000. He was 75. And you can find easy Amazon links to Tom Landry's book at our website, HeardEverything.com. Oh, and while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and check out my interview with Terry Bradshaw. I'm an NFL player. And I'm a broadcaster. I You know Alf personally. I know Alf personally. <laughs> and my conversation with the great Bart Starr. Playing with Green Bay under the leadership of Lombardi and winning so many championships in a relatively short period of time. We won five in seven years. No one's ever done that. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as the nation is set to mark the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. I want to revisit my interview from 2002 with the widow of one of the real heroes of September 11th, Todd Beamer. You'll hear my interview with his widow, Lisa Beamer. On September 10th, 
God knew what was going to happen to Todd, and he knew what was going to happen to our country. And, you know, for whatever reason, in Todd's case, he decided not to change the course of history for Todd and not to allow him to take a different flight or get stuck in traffic on the way to the airport. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thank you.